0: We're starting a brand new series today, My Story, My Song, based around the favorite songs that you submitted to us a few weeks ago when we asked you to give us your favorite old hymn or your favorite new song, whatever it is that you really love. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about those themes that grow out of that. Because you see, music is a power. It has a profound effect on every part of our being. At a funeral, words are meaningful, but music is what touches the heart. Different styles create different moods and different responses. Hearing a song can trigger a really special memory that you have. As a matter of fact, music seems to awaken the minds of Alzheimer's patients better than any other stimulus. Now, I've asked him if he would just kind of give us a sample of, of what I'm talking about this morning, and that is, I've asked him to play some different kinds or styles of music, and you tell me then how that makes you feel, okay? All right. Just a heads up, this is not gone according to plan at any of the services. So, true. But hope springs eternal. Okay, here's the first one. <laughs> okay, how's that make you feel? What? Cutthroat? Oh, Death Row, oh. Oh, Death Row. Yeah, well, yeah. That's good, yeah, actually. That's actually good. That's the, the, yeah, that's the best one we've gotten. That's the best one we've got yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> it has that sad mournful. It draws yes. out of you all that. that, that so, okay, try another one. Um, How does that make you feel? Dancing Butterflies. Uh, dancing Butterflies. Dancing Butterflies okay is that the best we can come up with people (laughs) well beats the first service they said hobby lobby i mean you know come on (laughs) okay dancing butterflies it's supposed to make you feel sort of reflective you know okay one more tim well i'm questioning my ability as a musician right now yeah okay here's one see how this makes you feel I can hear it, feet tapping. So it's a more of a happy, pleasant sound, isn't it? Yeah, okay, all right. We're going, to, we're going to end on that happy note because we're going to end on that happy note. Okay, I mean, okay that's it, all. It's just the way, the way it is, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> first service, he went out the women's quarter doors and I, uh, that raised quite a few eyebrows at first service, let me tell you. Well, you see what I mean? You hear a certain sound and it creates a certain feeling in you. It's either sadness or reflectiveness or joy because music is a powerful influencer. And music is a meaningful part of our relationship with God. For all of our anticipation, we don't know much about what it's going to be like in heaven and what we're going to do in heaven. But we do know this one thing. We know that music plays a powerful part and that we are going to sing to the praise of the Almighty God. Revelation chapter 5 verse 13 says, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. So you see, one thing we know that we will do when we get home to heaven is that we're going to sing to the praise of God and every creature will pour out his or her energy in worship and song. Perhaps that's why music is so integral to our worship in this world. If corporate worship only involved the mind, then studying the Bible would be sufficient. But it also involves our emotions and it also involves our soul And music is what pulls us into a heartfelt adoration of God. Uh, Many people sing, uh, some play instruments, some even compose music. Most everybody I know of has a favorite style of music. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever personally met an individual who says, I don't like music, period. No way, no style. Even people who are tone deaf, and you probably don't know who you are, still like music consequently we got a really good response when we asked you a few weeks ago about your favorite song and I was just overwhelmed by the number of songs that you considered to be so meaningful as a part of your life some were old hymns some were brand new contemporary songs but they all spoke of what speaks to you now, some of you may be like me. Your favorite may depend on your mood or a particular day or what you're going through. There are so many I'd have a hard time saying this is my all-time favorite. So from your, your, your selections, from what you have given to us, we have captured a few themes that we're going to explore over the next few weeks. And we're going to start our series with one of the greatest reasons to sing that there is, and that is the greatness of our God. Now, we use the word great in a lot of different ways. During this past school year, I would ask our granddaughter, Addie, how was kindergarten today? And Addie's answer was always the same. It was great. And and I knew from that that she was experiencing a, a wonderful school year the more the school year went on and every time I asked and I got that same answer it caused me to reflect on my own response to that question and I'll be honest with you folks I can't remember the last time somebody said how was your day and I responded with great but why shouldn't I I'm alive in reasonably good health able to eat and enjoy life why shouldn't I answer great by the way I don't hear many of you answer that question that way either You see, we've been given a gift of life by a great and loving God. Why shouldn't every day that we are in his presence be a great day? This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, so writes the psalmist. I know that there are tough days. I know that there are heartbreaking days. I know that there are frustrating days. I experience those days in my life too. But to be alive and to be loved by the God of the universe ought to be reflected in our attitudes and our spirit. It is a great day. How you doing? Great. All right. Thank you. The word great is the 14th most common adjective used in advertising. Great defines size as in the great pyramid as compared to the others. It defines superiority. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey advertised their circus as the greatest show on earth great describes significance it was a great strategic move that changed the course of history and by any definition that we use great fits the character of God when you speak of our God great is a fitting word Now, I want you to know this morning that we cannot begin to plumb the depths of God's greatness in a sermon, or for that matter, in a whole lifetime of study. So this morning is just a quick glimpse. It's just the snap of a finger. It's just the twinkling of an eye look into the greatness of God because we we don't have time to explore it in its depth. I'm only going to take a look at two facets. And the first one is simply this, God's greatness is seen in his creation. Now, I love studying science. And how it relates to God's creation. Now, obviously, some in the scientific field would find the two incompatible. But personally, I find that what we learn from science today only confirms my convictions about the greatness of God as our creator. Now, don't dismiss this too quickly or easily. Don't, don't suppose that this topic of creation is unimportant. I believe our conviction about God as creator is elementary, first of all, to our faith. And is also elementary to the way we behave and live in this world let me explain without the existence of a creator god there would be no moral code if there is no moral code there's no moral absolutes if there are no moral absolutes there's no such thing as sin and if there is no such thing as sin there is no need for or existence of a savior you say well wouldn't wouldn't be so bad if there was no sin would there do you realize what chaos would, would erupt in this world if, if everybody did what they wanted to because there were no consequences, there were no sin? And, and, and how would we, how do we, if there is no sin, how do we explain guilt that we feel, remorse that we feel? How do we explain evil at wickedness and depravity that we see around the world and we scratch our heads and we think, how could anybody act that Way. If there is no sin, there is a major problem. In his Fast Facts on False Teaching, Dr. Ron Carlson quotes a science teacher as saying, I know evolution is scientifically impossible, but I'm still going to teach it because it is morally comfortable. As long as I believe I am nothing but an animal, I can live any way I choose. But as soon as I admit there is a creator, then I become morally responsible to that creator, and frankly, I don't want to be morally responsible to anyone, end quote. The whole issue of morality is very much at stake at this dilemma. Without God, everything is up for grabs. Everything is fair game. Adolf Hitler used survival of the fittest to justify the destruction of over 12 million people during World War II. Without the Creator, we are nothing more than an arbitrary product of random chance. We are reduced to a collection of atomic particles that exist on a small planet in a vast solar system through which we are rapidly moving with no control, no direction, no purpose, or no destiny. We came from nothing. We are headed nowhere. And we'll be nothing when we become food for worms as we are six feet under. Now, if you've been struggling with your own self-esteem lately, you might want to forget that paragraph I just read. (laughs) But you see... Apart from a creator who designed us with purpose, who has given us an eternal destiny, and who loves us more than life itself, it is really hard to find a basis for self-esteem in this world. If you dismiss God as the creator, if you dismiss God, period, on what do you base your self-worth? Now, when I study science, there are so many things that point me to the Creator. And I wish I had time this morning to explore all of them. But since you have other things to do before nightfall, I'm going to limit my thoughts to just a few. Uh, take DNA. Now, now, let me answer this quickly. Did God build into creation's DNA the capacity for a species to adapt or evolve to its environment? Certainly he did. He did. Humanity adapts to every situation that it finds itself in. The the animal kingdom does that as well. But do you realize this morning how complex our DNA really is? If the DNA sequence of the human genome were compiled into 1,000-page books, it would take the equivalent of 200 volumes to contain it all. This book here, is a 1,000-page book, small print, 200 of these to record the human genome in the most profound language known to us, this, this DNA. Do you, do you realize how that breaks down? Let's say you were going to apply for a job to read the human genome in this 200-volume set. And you read three bases every second. Now, instead of words, we would have the letters that represent these bases. C, T, G, T, G, C. And that's about reading about three per second. If you went through all the volumes and you did it 40 hours a week as a job, do you know how many years it would take you to finish the human genome of our DNA? It would take you 132 years. You'd be into the third generation of 40-hour A week workers before it would be finished read the first time it is amazing to me that the most complex language system is located in every cell of your body and mind and science is just now learning that there are hidden codes within the code this is phenomenal it it would be like taking an English paragraph and going through and plucking out every third letter in that paragraph and then then lining up those, and it would say something altogether different in French. How hard would that be to develop a code like that so you're writing out the English paragraph with the idea that you're going to build a French code in every third letter? Oh, my goodness. Nobody could accidentally do that. It speaks of a grand designer and a genius mind to be able to put all that into the cell so small. We cannot see any of it with the naked eye. The more we learn about our DNA, the more it points to a great intelligent designer. And here's another thought to consider. We've talked about this before. I just want to remind you how important it is. It is the principle of irreducible complexity. Dr. Michael Behe has written extensively on this subject, which states that a system or a device, when it is reduced to its basic parts that irreducible complexity means it takes all of those parts in order to operate. And he uses the example of a mousetrap. You have five basic parts of a mousetrap. You have the base, you have the metal hammer, you have the spring, you have the catch, and you have the bar which holds the hammer until it is tripped. You take away any one of those pieces and the mousetrap will not work, cannot work. It takes five pieces working together before the mousetrap can function. It is irreducibly complex at those five pieces. And I think you could add a sixth, actually. I think bait has to be added before it really will work. So you could actually say there are six parts to make it irreducibly complex. The I is irreducibly complex. The eye was a real problem uh, for Darwin. All of the parts, the rods, the cones, the lens, the retina, the iris, and so much more are vital for it to work. You take away any one of those parts and the eye will not function. Vision becomes impossible. And evolution teaches that things do not develop at the same time to make something function. It develops linearly uh, in, in, in a line kind of a fashion, not all coming together as one. So many things in creation appear reducibly complex, and those are the things that just shout out the greatness of God. Remember what Paul wrote in the book of Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So let me give you just a couple examples of what I think are irreducibly complex creatures of God's handiwork. I don't know how many of you are afraid of spiders. I know a lot of people are. I'm not afraid of spiders. But I want to give you a new appreciation for the spider this morning. Let me just give you a glimpse into this marvelous creation. And, and, and I'm going to limit my comments to the orb spider, the one that makes those beautiful round spider webs that when you cannot see it and walk into it, makes your face feel all funny. On the tip of the orb spider's abdomen, there are three pairs of spinnerets, and each tiny conical spinneret is covered with spigots, as many as a thousand on each, which can dispense liquid silk. Now think of a glue gun. When a glue gun gets hot and you squeeze the trigger, the glue comes out in liquid form. The thickness is controlled by the tiniest of valves before the silk even leaves the spigot. There is a silk for the web anchor another for the frame another for the sticky stretchy silk that catches the prey there is a soft cottony silk that is used to wrap the prey and another cottony soft silk that is used to create the egg sac of the spider Now check out this picture of the various silk glands that the orb spider uses. Now think about most spiders that you know. Most of them are probably in the size of a carnation or boutonniere pin or or something like that. They're not big creatures. And there are up to seven different glands in the abdomen all connected to these spigots. And the the mystery is what science cannot figure out is how this liquid when it comes out of the spigot, of the spinnerets and is pulled by the hind legs of the spider suddenly goes from liquid form into a solid form and you watch a spider work and they just drop dramatically fast on these threads that are coming from their uh, the glands in the abdomen they can create one of these orb Uh, webs in less than an hour, and it is just the most amazing piece of work that you can possibly imagine. With multitasking dexterity, the, the hind legs of a spider knows which spigot of all of those to pull from, how hard to pull, how fast to pull, to create different thicknesses, stretchiness, and everything else. When you look at a spider's web, be utterly amazed at the greatness of God's design. And what's more? I just read this this week, that at Oxford University, they've discovered healing properties in, in, in the spider silk. Properties that they believe will help in bone healing and even brain healing. Now, did all of this develop simultaneously so the spider could survive? Or, 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 or is this the product of long periods of of? Uh, Of evolving, or is this the majestic design, a glimpse into the creator himself? How about the master of disguise, the cuttlefish, which actually belongs to the same group as squid and octopods? Due to an intricate, triple layered, color changing skin, the cuttlefish can shape his shape, he can change color, and he can even change his skin texture to blend in with his surroundings instantly. Heather Brinson Bruce writes, Cuttlefish are so good at imitation that they can instantly transform into a black and white chessboard or any other surrounding that mischievous researchers can think of. And a cuttlefish can do it instantly while it's swimming. Again, all this has to come together simultaneously before any of this can happen. Those three layers of skin that do all these different things could not have happened linearly. It would not have been that case. It all had to come together at once. The art of the cuttlefish is irreducibly complex. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. And Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The creator God is the glue that holds all of his creation together and we are the crown of his creation. The graduates, can I encourage you, do your own study. Don't take my word for it. You dig deep. You do your own study. Keep your mind open. Begin to look around you at the things that God has placed in His creation to point you to Him, because I believe the greatness of His design will only become more obvious the longer we study and the more we learn. Here's the second thing, though God's greatness is seen in His creation, but His greatness is experienced in His faithfulness. I love this passage from Lamentations, it is a treasure. Chapter 3, verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How would you describe the word faithful this morning? Devoted, loyal, reliable, dependable, constant. Those are words that describe who God is to us. I marvel at his faithfulness, that he has kept his promises throughout Scripture, which gives me reason to be confident in his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Ken Waters wrote, he said, when we look back at the faithfulness of God, we praise him. When we look forward to God's faithfulness, we trust him. The great Christian reformer Martin Luther reminds us, if God gave his own son for us, how could he ever bring himself to desert us in small things? Sometimes, Sometimes God's faithfulness is better understood in a real-life story than in any words I could use to describe it Mimi Dang from our congregation here has quite a story to share of her family's escape from Vietnam Throughout her life, Mimi has lived in the assurance of God's awesome, great faithfulness Listen to her testimony
1: We were at war in 1975 My dad planned to escape a year later which we did by a small river boat. 13 of us were in the boat, sailed out to the open sea at night. My dad pretended to be a merchant and carry all the fruit like sugarcane, like banana and pineapples, and tried to hide all the children underneath of that and try to escape. We head out to the sea. And when we head out to the sea, um, we were stopped at the police station. Um, thanks God, they were kind of, kind of, you know, look at us, and okay, go, 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 go. So they let us go, that's what we did. We head out to sea. And we were out to sea for those five days, five nights. Rough sea, crashing wave, and we survived. Our propelled engine, it won't work anymore. And My father even brought with us a little compass. It showed us the direction north and south, and that wouldn't do us anything neither. We just put our faith, our trust, our belief in God and pray that, God, here we are. Please take us wherever you want us to go. And so that's it. We just let the boat drift it. Let the wind drift our boat and let it go wherever God wants us to go. God was so good to us with those five days. There's no sun. So we would not be burned by the sun. And thanks God, it was cloudy. All we did in the boat was to sing, to praise, and to pray God. So I remember, oh, we, we sang all the time. We sang one after the, the other. The fifth day, we were so exalted, too exalted. My youngest sister, she was up that early morning for five o'clock in the morning. She saw the light far away. It was a, a Thai fishing boat. So she screamed and yelling, so my dad, you know, woke up and start the engine, start the propel motor again. And we head directly to that Thai fishing boat. That captain was so nice, so kind, he allowed us to get into their boat. And after we get into their boat, we look back at our river boat. It broken pieces by pieces. All the wood floated on the sea. Our boat was disintegrated in front of our eyes. God was there. He even provided the interpreter in the Thai fishing boat who could speak English, then we could communicate it with them. So we asked them, how long have you been out here at sea? And they said that this is our first day we are out here at sea to catch the fish. And they told us that we won't be go back to the shore until the next, you know, three to five days or whenever we get enough fish, catch enough fish. So we we said, oh, no, this is not good. So we all get together and we pray. We pray that God will help them to catch enough fish. And truly and surely, yes, within that first day, they caught enough fish to take us back to the shore the next day. And when we were at shore, God provided a missionary, an American missionary who could speak Vietnamese fluently. Uh, She came and rescued us and helped us to get straight to the refugee camp without being put in jail. And then when we were in the refugee camps for six and a half months, we must be sponsored by somebody and we happened to be sponsored by a surgeon. He was stationed in Vietnam before the war. He and the Mennonite Church in Upland, Indiana sponsored us. That's how we arrived in Upland, Indiana. I would love to share with you the song that I loved to sing while we were on the boat. (tries) I even when hoặc trên sông biên hay chiêm trong bê thấm sâu tôi sống mỗi ngày nương chua không thôi chua cha trên trời hàng trăm năm tôi mỗi nơi
0: Of the words of that song, My Heavenly Father Watches Over Me. Faithful. We experience His greatness through His faithfulness. The Bible opens with these words in the beginning, God created. How you accept that, what you believe about that, really says everything about how we're going to live. Remember, no human was there to witness the beginning of time. So regardless of what you believe, it is a step of faith. But I believe it must be a step of reasonable faith. And for my two cents worth, random, accidental existence just isn't reasonable in light of all of his greatness in creation. The older I grow, the more convinced of his existence and greatness I become. What I see, what I learn, what I experience directs my attention to him and you know he just keeps giving new moments I thought when I was younger that by the time I reached this age you know that the that the knowledge I would have or there wouldn't be new things to experience or learn about the greatness of God but nothing could be farther from the truth Elsie and I are privileged to have five grandchildren and we have a a sixth one due in three months and I'm as excited about number six as I was about number one I thought maybe the newness would wear off but it hasn't and and really have you ever stopped to think about it why why would I care anything about another generation of randomly selected atoms just particles in these other people I mean I, I don't think I should feel anything about that Logically, there should be no feeling at all. And yet, I want you to know that I've discovered that there's no feeling like it in all the world. That God in his greatness has suddenly given us another glimpse into his love and greatness through this grandparent-grandchild relationship. To be loved by a little child so unconditionally to have this feeling only points me again to a God who could place that in my heart. It didn't just happen. It is the indescribable gift of a loving creator who wants us to know him as much as he knows us. Wow, how great is our God.